Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Erica Slater, and we are bringing you our third of our three-part episode of when we recently had the privilege to speak at the 43rd Annual Arizona Women's Lawyers Convention in Phoenix, Arizona. Please excuse any difference in the quality of audio as this was a live recording of our podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this series, encourage you to go back and listen to parts one and two, and we will be back to our regular episodes next week. Thanks. So I think one of the questions that we were talking about was, do you have to go through growing pains? I think the answer is yes. It's just going to be different for everyone. I'm the first to acknowledge my privilege up here, right? I mean, I'm at a firm that my dad founded. It has brought me to be able to have experiences like this, which not anyone that I know personally can say at another like plaintiff's firm, especially. My dad is the son of an immigrant from Lebanon, and he's got nine brothers and sisters and, you know, didn't grow up with a whole lot, neither did my mom. And I was kind of raised in a household, just to give some context of my background of, our problems aren't problems. You know, like I've got food on the table, I've got an education, I can go to a school that I get into, I can, you know, pursue any career that I want. It's just how I was raised as to just, you don't complain about things. You don't have a reason to complain about anything in the position that you're in. But I think there's a distinction to be made between complaining and acknowledging when something isn't right. And I appreciate being in a workplace with such amazing women who encourage me to speak up. I think the growing pains I have just given that context are going to be different than anyone else even sitting up here and probably distinct from anyone sitting in this room. But the shared space and the shared stories that come from talking to colleagues or finding your group, finding your lunch group, going to coffee with somebody, having a conversation that's, you know, just come back and we'll figure it out. Just having that peace of mind with somebody helps you get through hurdles that you have to face. And you know what, you guys, I've been asked to get coffee in depositions before. I mean, all the dumb things that like the guys on the other side of cases who are 30 years older than me will ask me to do. I'm just like, I don't know why this is still happening right now, but it is, you know. But I, in those moments at the beginning in the first year of practice, I'm not kidding. I would be so nervous to say anything, I would kind of just leave the room kind of quickly because I didn't know how to have dialogue about it. And then I didn't even want to repeat that it happened. And why would I not do that if it was my, am I protecting the guy who told me to get him a cup of coffee? Like, I don't know why we do those things. And I, I just, it gives me so much confidence in the growing pains to share stories with other women who can you know, back me up or say, yeah, that was messed up. That shouldn't happen. Next time, why don't you try this? And I implement those things. And all that to say is my biggest advice with growing pains, particularly being a female in this profession, is start finding out a way that when something happens that's not right, actually address it. Because if two years go by and the same thing's happening over and over and you're not changing anything that you're doing, I feel like I can't even say that I've tried to help. And it's not just on my behalf, but on all of the women who I work with's behalf and my opposing counsel who are women on their behalf. 
I most recently had a, I guess it's kind of a funny story, but maybe not. Uh, <laughs> this guy on the other side of a case, he's been practicing for way, way longer than I have. And he addresses all the correspondence in the case with gentlemen. And it's all in letter format. Like every single thing that we talk about comes in a letter and it's addressed to gentlemen. I just knew I had to do something with it, right? I mean, that's too good to not try to dress. <laughs> and I called him and I just let him know, you know, here's the deal. If you want to exchange dates for a court hearing and you want me to go, then it can't say gentlemen because <laughs> it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> so you got to figure out a way to change the letterhead or the address that you guys have been using probably, you know, maybe when I was born, and let's update it a little bit, because surprise, women are lawyers, and women can show up to court, and young women can show up to court with people who have been on the other side or practicing for 20 and 30 years longer than I have, and I have the exact same authority to stand in the corner next to him. I mean, there's a big height difference, but it's fine. I've got my heels on. And so I get to show up, and I'm that gentleman, so don't. And it changed. The letterhead did change. And I don't think in my first year I would have ever thought to pick up the phone and say something about it. But I just, I think I get there because I have camaraderie with, you know, the women at my office, other women in St. Louis. It's so important when those challenges are met that you find a way to address it and embrace it and change things because those statistics are scary. And I don't know how else we get there other than saying things when it happens and calling it out, stop protecting when those things happen. And I think that could be a, an avenue for change, good change for all of us. But I don't want to take up too much time. I know that other folks got to share some stories too. So. Elizabeth. So I think something that we've touched on a little bit, maybe not, you know, in this blank of a way, but uh, dealing with assholes is something that <laughs> I'm sure something that I've experienced it today. So, I mean, it's just something that in this profession you have to learn to deal with and how you're going to manage it. And as a young attorney, it's hard because it can be so surprising when it happens. Like, I grew up watching Real Housewives. I watched Confrontation. I think that helps. <laughs> but when it first happened to me, I didn't know how to handle it. And I learned throughout my few years how to deal with it. And one specific scenario is I was defending our expert's deposition in a product liability case. It's a pretty high stakes case, but the attorney taking the deposition, he's kind of a hothead, very conceited, maybe not the smartest guy I've ever met, but anyway, <laughs> and he was pretty aggressive, which we're all probably aware of people like that in our professional lives. No real surprise when it comes to trial lawyers, but he kept cutting my expert off. Trial attorneys know, like, you can't let that happen. So I stepped in and I was like, hey, Mr. Opposing Counsel, like, please let my expert finish his answer. And he got really angry and he told me to shut up. I didn't really know what to do. I was a bit taken aback. So I said, I'm sorry, can you say that again? Say it to my face. And I, I use this as a trick because, you know, sometimes people say things in the heat of the moment. And I understand that. And so if he wants to walk it back, I'll let him walk it back and we can move on. Unfortunately, he doubles down. Oh, God. He says it again. And so I just address it and I say, you know, 
I have a right to let this expert finish. Like you need to let him finish. And he was like, well, we were having a perfectly fine conversation before you interrupted. And I was like, no, you weren't. Anyway, I'll spare you the rest of the details. <laughs> it was fine. It worked out fine. But there was another female attorney on the deposition for a different defendant. And she called me afterwards. And she was like, that was horrible, but I thought you handled it really well. And just to hear that, the like my perception of it was like, yeah, that was an awful experience. But to hear that I handled it well was really helpful because like every time I see that guy, I kind of like shake a little bit. <laughs> it was just horrible. And like, I, I don't know, I thought about like how he went home to his family and like how he felt telling, you know, a 27 year old to shut up in a deposition. I just thought it was bizarre. But anyway, that's him and that's on him. And I think that something I learned from that is you can't internalize those moments. You can't take it with you and like you just got to move on from it so i obviously have a really thick skin i don't take anything personally i don't think that's a way for everyone to handle things some people it motivates them when things like that happen i just like to let them roll off me so take with that what you will but i just want um, the young lawyers or the people in law school to know that like there's going to be some hard days and you just kind of have to push through them but try to find a group of people that you can talk about this stuff with because it helps leaps and bounds and it makes this a lot more of an enjoyable profession because there's some hard days, but there's some really good ones too. Who's next? Does anyone have any questions? Do you think there's a difference with how you feel with conflict with opposing counsel versus conflict in general? And the reason I ask is because in the situations that I've encountered, I always have to grapple with the decision of what's best for my client. And if you're making the relationship between yourself and opposing counsel worse because you're standing up for yourself or whatever, then that's not necessarily your client's best interest. And so I would love if you would speak to the difference between just conflict in general in our profession and then conflict when we have to consider our client's interests above all else. I have something funny on this. Think. You get some yeah, funny. funny. Then. <laughs> I think this is an awesome question. And I always remember in moments with opposing counsel, I am the only person who's speaking on behalf of my client. Obviously, client's interest comes first. And I always think to myself, you know, the next thing I say it's hard, you know, not saying self-discipline is really important. I feel like as being a trial lawyer, the things you say need to be serving a purpose. They need to be moving you and your client forward in the case. I try my best to be absolutely respectful when you have those moments with opposing counsel. I was in a deposition a couple of years ago and the other lawyer was, it was a fun song and dance with objections and then stopping and a lot of disruption. And I just, I had the same thought that you did, which was, you know what, my goal here is to get to a really good outcome for my client. And I know if I make this harder than it needs to be with this other lawyer, you look so angry right now. It's not going to serve the best purpose for my client. And I said on the record something like, respectfully, respectfully, I'm going to ask that you just let my client finish answering the questions. And the other lawyer went, Respectfully, respectfully, I'm gonna ask and mocked me when I said it. And I was like, okay, this is that moment where I can just be mad, right? And, say something and I did it, right? Right? Uh, that would be the one time where you can just say what you really wanna say. But I still just thought to myself, like, you know what, this is videotaped. I'm not gonna be the one to do that. 
And I just kept thinking in my head, I am the only person here to get my client where she needs to be. And that is usually my driving goal with those communications. The non-opposing counsel conflict, I think I've learned a lot from Amy and other mentors that I have that you've got to really think about your long-term relationships with folks. St. Louis is a smaller legal community too, and we're always thinking you don't want to burn bridges with people. So outside of the realm of conflict with opposing counsel where I've been able to rein it in enough where I can keep my client still as number one no matter, that's my filter that I've got. But with conflict with others, I'm really intentional about what I want to say to people if there's conflict. I want to get to a place with conflict with others where I have listened to anything they need to say to me. And I will state what my stance or if I have to apologize, I'll apologize. Or if I have to say I'll change something else moving forward, would I own my part, right? And just know that any communication that I have with someone, that is going to just stick with me. That's going to be, however I respond to those situations, that's going to be tagged under my name. Oh, Mary Simon, she's, and that explanation of, that's my reputation. So for me, I'm good at keeping my client's interest first. And all other conflict, I just got to be aware, own your part. If you need to own your part in it, listen to what someone else to say, but just know that your response to somebody is going to be the way that person remembers you, conflict or not. And yeah, so that's generally kind of like what my approach to that is. All right. Say with me. Don't take the bait. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do it. Because that's probably what it is. This is my personal belief. I don't take the bait ever from anyone, personal, professional. If I do, I feel like I have let them win, let them have some energy over me. It takes so much energy to engage in conflict. In that situation, I sometimes chuckle because that makes them even more mad, you know? <laughs> and I just do not take the bait. And again, easier said than done, but if you're not telling yourself these things, that's not gonna be your default. And Mary, like you said, keep your eye on the prize. How does it serve me to engage with this ridiculous person in their ridiculous insecurities or whatever's going on with them that day? It does not. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help my client. If someone gets under my skin, I feel like I have failed the situation. Now, that's kind of, I know that's kind of extreme and it is incredible discipline to do that, but it is what I believe has worked for me over the years. Don't take the bait. Don't do it. The last thing I'll add, and this is something that Amy repeats, and now I think she's got all of us saying it, is you teach people how to treat you, mm -hmm. right? And so when I deal with a difficult opposing counsel, and the one that came to mind, it was a Zoom deposition. It was deep in the pandemic. No one's going anywhere. We're all just seeing each other on the screens. And I was taking an expert's deposition, and the opposing counsel, whenever I would ask a question, she would shake her head yes or shake her head no. She wouldn't say anything, but I could see her yeah. shaking her head. You're on the screen. I could see you too. <laughs> and I could see the expert's eyes darting between me and then he's like, okay, man, how much was it? Answer? <laughs> and I let her get away with it, I think two times. And by the third time I said, miss, please. And I got on the record, you got to stop shaking your head. I can see you shaking your head. We can all see you. Please stop. I'm afraid that you're giving answers to the expert. And she 
flipped out on me. I mean, she took such personal offense to the fact that I have eyes. <laughs> and she goes, well, I guess I'll just keep my head still for the rest of the deposition. I go, yeah, yes. that's what I would like you to do. Yes, <laughs> keep her head still, that's all I need. And I've noticed, and this is something that I think she tried to get away with me because maybe she thought I was younger. I don't know. I don't know if I'm a young lawyer or not anymore. I'm in that like weird like gray zone. But uh, <laughs> but she hasn't done it to me since. Her colleagues haven't tried anything like that with me since. And I realized, even though it was an uncomfortable moment, and maybe if I had been fresh out of law school, I might not have said anything. But I have enough confidence in myself that I did say something, and I know she's not going to try it again. And the people who are also on that deposition, they're going to know not to try that again. And that does serve my client's purpose, right? Because if they're experts getting an answer from the attorney, that doesn't help my case. So, you know, you can disagree with people without being disagreeable. And that's what I try to do is I just try to stay pleasant and also understand there are some people who are just deeply unpleasant and we're never going to get along. And that's fine. That's fine. So we don't have to be friends. <laughs> Any other questions? Other questions? Hi, ladies. Thank you for being here. My name is Sonia, 18-year attorney, solo practitioner in Mesa, Arizona. Aside from mentoring, sponsoring, and advocating for women that come behind me a little bit younger than me, any other thoughts on how we could potentially move this 2181 day time to 21? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just be mentoring, sponsoring, advocate, but any other ideas for, you know, attorneys 15 years plus where we can help the younger ones coming in? Thanks. So the number one reason that the women over 15 years of practice were leaving was talking about pay disparity. Now, yes, is that an issue in many industries across the board? Yes, we know that is. But when it comes to women in the practice of law, it becomes a pay disparity when there's these tiers of partnerships. I'm sure you've seen at many firms, you know, now it's not just you're a partner or not, you're a partner or a principal or an equity partner. And, you know, there's all these stages to work through. So like, hey, we'll give you the title, but we're not going to give you the high title. The only thing that I can add to the discussion that we had today is the pay disparity, and I've always preached this, talk to your colleagues about it. I mean, you know, thank God for Zillow because everyone knows what everyone's house costs. And <laughs> <not a thing. laughs> Let's think about pay the same way. If you have 15 female colleagues, put it on a post-it and a hat and pull out everyone's and see what the heck it says. You know, share information with other women talk to women at other firms, ask them to share their information with you. So when you inevitably, you know, pump yourself up and do your research and figure out, you know, what you're doing when you go into maybe ask from your boss about getting credit or getting equal pay or getting a promotion or being compensated in the way you know you deserve, arm yourself with as much information. So when you have those conversations, you have something to go on. Engage your male colleagues in that regard as well. And you know, let's make it like Zillow. <laughs> let's just post them all up there so everybody knows. And I think more information sharing and breaking down those walls will help those conversations and help other women have the tools to have those conversations. Oh, it's not even just sharing the information, though, it's what you do when you get it. So, for example, I worked at a firm where all the partners' salaries and bonuses were published once a year. And so I find out the guy down the hall who has 10 years less experience than I comes down and asks me everything about how to do this case work. He's <laughs> making $40,000. Are you in this? That's the story. <laughs> God knows why I have a class. I left that firm eventually. 
And the story I kind of got back was, well, he's married with three kids. And oh, oh. Right, right, right. Classic. Right. This Classic. is pulled straight so out of here. You can have the information, and then you can go and you can say, what is this? And they have some bullshit reason that they mm -hmm. give you that has nothing, is not based in reality. At some point, you have nothing you can do but leave, right? Sure. And if it happens often enough, you leave the profession. Mm -hmm. Yep. Hi, so I, um, Amy, you were just like, this is the highest compliment, like badass. And I And we're about the same age. We've been practicing about the same amount of time and I'm tired. <laughs> and I'm gonna get emotional, but I'm tired. It's the culture, it's the mindsets, trying to always have to be on. Mm -hmm. trying to always be your A-game, trying to always um, not do this, trying to always keep it in check, and and not even like considering the, the whole balance thing and having a life, but I'm so tired. And I just, I don't want to do it anymore because I am so tired. And I mean, I want to show other girls out there that you can be a badass too. But for the rest of us who maybe the stamina is running out, what do we do? You know, I, I don't want to give up, but it's taking a toll. And it's, you know, taking hit after hit after hit. And it's just hard. So you're on the conference committee. This is partly your room, right? So thank you for that. I can promise you that every woman in this room appreciates you for that. Because what I... What I know about you in 30 seconds is that you care deeply about this profession and you've worked very hard for all these years. And there's no way you're done with this profession. You're having a bad time right now. We all do that. I know how you feel. I mean, when I have particularly had a year like you're describing, kind of ups and downs, and you look around, you're like, why do I keep doing this? And I search my soul for why I have kept at it and the persistence of it. And you have to give yourself some grace. Mm -hmm. And I'm just guessing, but you're not giving yourself any grace. You're working hard. You're doing so much for other people that you're not taking time for yourself. And when you do take time yourself, do you feel guilty? Yeah. And that was really something that I've tried to believe, that I deserve it. I deserve to look around, be proud of myself, and to admit that I'm having a hard time right now and ask for some help, whether it is at work or at home. But you have to trust yourself that you've done this for so long and so well that you will find a time, hopefully in the near future, where you're enjoying it again. But do an assessment. And I think COVID helped me with this a little bit. We're all overextended. I mean, I pretend like I don't have FOMO, but I have FOMO, okay? <laughs> like I'm in every organization, I'm doing all this stuff. And COVID hits and it all sort of grinds to a stop. I was happy for that to happen for a while. I mean, I don't mean I'm happy about a pandemic, but certainly it allowed me to shed 
the crap. And I've let go of different organizations and different things that don't bring me joy. You deserve joy. Only you can decide what that joy is for you and forget the rest, shed the rest of it. And you owe that to yourself. You need to take time for yourself. And everybody in this room needs to do that, whether you're in law school or out 25 years, it's never too late to take time for yourself. And the guilt and the regret, again, forget it. So please believe that. And like I said, I just, I don't know you, but I know you because I think we're very similar and we're all gonna be there. Don't be afraid to ask for help and don't ever feel like you don't deserve to care for yourself and to put yourself first. And then call me (laughs) whenever you want and we can talk about whatever you wanna talk about. And I like to curse, and so when we're on the phone, we'll do some more cursing. (laughs) We'll feel better about that. So So thank you. You mentioned earlier one of the reasons women leave, again, not a surprise, but child rearing, family duties, that sort of thing. I was really hopeful with the pandemic that we would learn a lot of lessons, which is, We don't have to be in the office. We can better juggle food, laundry, children. And now I'm seeing that erode. And I'm wondering if you guys are, and if we've learned that, or if we simply have returned to 2019, unfortunately. If you guys have answers, I want to know too, please. (laughs) (laughs) What What I learned about myself in the pandemic professionally, I'm old school, grew up with going to the office every day. If you weren't at the office, you weren't working which was stupid, but that's the mentality. And I bought into it for a number of years. What the pandemic taught me is that we work very efficiently at home. I'm in a different place. My boys are you know, older and take care of themselves, you know, as boys do, <laughs> but weren't underfoot. Let's just say they weren't underfoot all day long. And I can be efficient at home. Then everything opens up, everybody's going back. It starts feeling weird again. Go, I need to be there. I need to be there. I need to answer questions. The door needs to be open. I need to help my staff. I need to, and you just don't do that to yourself. Who is telling me I need to do FaceTime 25 years later? Nobody but me, nobody but me. Now, I think you still have to serve your staff. And I do believe being in the office is important for the face-to-face and not only for the instruction for work, but also for just that personal You know, I feel very strongly about respecting your staff and telling them how much you appreciate them and respect them. That pays you back in spades. So I'm hoping that anybody who had the mentality like I did, that you really only really be successful and productive in the office, we don't let ourselves feel differently about it. And you know, the only other thing I'm gonna add to that, and I know we're close to time, is I'm a huge advocate of therapy. I've got a therapist, I embraced it. I've got a one-year-old. I don't know what the hell happened over the last year of my life. Like I'm still trying to figure out like who I am. And the one thing that has helped me a little bit in that regard is when I'm working and I work at home a ton, I will, obviously I'm giving 110% to my work when I'm on the clock or clocked in that way. In my personal, in the whole other realm of the work-life balance, I have really started to embrace this concept of good enough. You know, if my daughter eats the frozen meatballs three days in a row because she likes them and she'll eat them, that's just good enough. And it's okay. I'm just tired. And the migraine is fine. So I really embraced this concept of good enough 
in certain areas of my life where I'm like, am I doing this the best that I can? Yes, and that's all that matters. The equation stops there. Is it good enough for me? Yes, then I don't need to consider if it's good in somebody else's eyes or, you know. And that is the newest perspective that I have after having my daughter. My husband and I both work. We both tag team, you know, as much as we can. But that good enough, embrace it. If it's good enough for you, then let the rest shed it. Right. Get rid of it. Okay, I'm so sorry to have to do this. Thank you so much, everyone. We really appreciate it. I really want to say thank you to the ladies. This was absolutely amazing. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today. 